welcome to this episode of Manufacturing Talk Radio. I'm Tim Grady, and I am here today with Dr. Chris Keel. He is with Armada Corporate Intelligence, and they put out a document called the HLIS Report. It stands for the Armada Strategic Intelligence System, which talks about manufacturing with a 95 or better percent accuracy and forecasting. I don't know of any other tool, Chris, that does it, but welcome to the show, and let's get into it. Very good. And before I forget, because I always do forget, to the listeners, if you are interested in any of these things, just let me know because we do these long free trials. We do like a two-month trial to the ACES, so you can check it out for yourself for a couple of months without any obligation whatsoever. We also do a thing called the flagship, which comes out three times a week, and it's more of a kind of a newsletter slash blog type thing. So we talk about all kinds of different economic and political and whatever issues. And we do a month long trial for that as well. So you get a chance to check both of these things out without obligating yourself in any way. We just get to clog up your inbox for a little while. And the best way to access both of those is to simply go to our website, which we all now do for everything. Um, which is www.armada-intel.com. So that's A-R-M-A-D-A-Intel, I-N-T-E-L.com. And one last thing before we get into it, because I frequently get this question when I talk and give presentations, why do you call yourselves Armada? And here is the, the true but kind of embarrassing story. Armada was formed about 23 years ago, and it was due to a conversation that I was having with my current partner at a bar. We had had several beers, and we have decided that we would create this business, and we were going to get into the business of corporate and competitive intelligence. And so the more beer we had, the better idea, it seemed. And so all of a sudden, it was like, okay, we're going to do this. What are we going to call it? There was a big picture of a ship over the bar. So we decided that we would call it Armada, because to be honest, we both thought this was going to last about two weeks, and then we would fold our tents and go away. Well, you know, 23 years later, we still have the company, we're still thriving, and we're still called Armada, even though people keep wanting to call us Amanda or Armando or all, you know, but, but we, we are indeed Armada. So there, that's all, that's all the background you're going to get. That and the fact that when you start Look. a business with a former student, there are, there are penalties to pay later. Um, my business partner is 12 years younger than me. So every time I talk about retirement, he says, well, you can retire when I turn 65. And I said, Keith, I'll be 77 years old. And he goes, well, that's not my problem. So there we go. <laughs> so you know the latest information that i'm reading chris is that you know maybe there won't be a recession or it'll be kind of a soft landing for a couple of months and off we'll go again what is aces showing yeah aces is basically pointing in the same direction and yesterday morning i was participant in admittedly a very local uh, presentation. This was the Kansas City, Missouri's Chamber of Commerce annual forecast breakfast. 
And what's interesting about that is that I do this every year with their chief economist, a guy named Frank Link. And Frank's been doing this for, God, 30 years and has a pretty remarkable track record. And what he was reporting, again, just for the Kansas City area, but consistent with what I'm seeing around the country, is that we will indeed see a downturn slash recession, kind of depending on how you want to characterize it, but only one that lasts a quarter or two. We probably are in the beginning of it now. We'll probably see it continue to be down into first quarter of next year, but then it starts to turn. Second quarter, probably fairly anemic growth. Um, we're sort of projecting half a point, maybe a point of growth, nothing to write home about. But by the time you get to the end of 23, you're back to two and a half, three percent growth, which is high average. I mean, for the last 25 years, we have been around 2.5% growth. That's considered normal in the United States. We have not seen normal for a couple of years. So we're not sure there is a normal anymore. But 2020, we of course were down. That was a major recession. It was a weird recession. It was a manufactured recession, you know, et cetera. Then we had 21, which was remarkably fast growing. We were hitting at about 6% growth, which we virtually never do. This year, we're probably going to end up somewhere in that kind of low, <clears throat> maybe a point, point and a half percent growth, which is kind of in between the two weird years. And then we start to look somewhat more normal in the coming year. <laughs> Even though we haven't seen normal since 2019, uh, we're still insisting that that's normal. So, Chris, it sounds like 2023 could be a replication of 2022. We had two soft quarters and then two slightly stronger quarters. Yep. And I think we'll see a lot of the same motivation because I don't remember if we talked about this the last time we met, but as we were projecting 2022, we thought that we would get pretty anemic growth in third quarter. The projection was, you know, 0 0.3, 0 0.5, nothing particularly exciting. We ended up at 2.9, which is, I mean, almost rocket speed after being down for two consecutive quarters in the first and second. So as we go into the rest of this year, we're not sure that the momentum from third quarter is going to carry us forward, but it might. As I talked about, I think last time, is a lot of that third quarter growth was based on exports, and it was based on manufacturing exports. And when I talk about this publicly, this is the point in my talks where I go into my manufacturing rant. <laughs> so, so I, so I, so I will treat you, listeners, watchers, viewers. What do you call people that watch these things? Bored. Um, I, <laughs> there, there's got to be a term for somebody that watches Zoomers, Zoom, Zoom participants. Uh, so for you Zoomers out there, my manufacturing rant goes as follows: We don't understand manufacturing in the United States. We have been convincing ourselves for 30, 40 years that we are no longer a manufacturing nation, which is not true. We account for 40% of the value of global manufacturing. China is around 15, maybe 20%, right now much lower. 
And the reason for that is that we manufacture very, very sophisticated stuff. We make airplanes, road building equipment, railroad engines. I mean, we make very expensive things, which other countries buy to make the cheap things that they sell us. So consumers benefit from Chinese manufacturing and Asian manufacturing and whatever, because they're making the cheap consumer goods. We make the expensive stuff. But because we make expensive stuff, it's really sensitive to dollar value. At the beginning of the year, the dollar was very, very strong, particularly as compared to other currencies that we trade with. By third quarter, we hadn't really weakened, but those currencies had caught up. And because they caught up, you suddenly saw more demand from Europe, from Asia for those big expensive things that we make. The other thing about my manufacturing rant is that we have heard for 20, 30 years that not many people work in manufacturing. That's not true either. The way that we count people for the purposes of employment is we want to know what they do. So we want to know how many accountants we have. We want to know how many bankers we have. We want to know how many people that host Zoom calls we have. So we end up counting people by their job function, not by who they work for. So 92% of the people who work at Ford Motor Company are not in manufacturing. They're in accounts receivable or marketing or HR or design or who knows, they're not in manufacturing. But if you ask the person who's worked at Ford for 40 years, are you in manufacturing? Well, yeah, you know, my company makes vehicles, you know. <laughs> so if you look at who we work for, as opposed to what we do, almost a third of the labor force works in manufacturing. So it's a huge and important part of our economy, always has been. <clears throat> and the next time some media talking head drones on about we're not a manufacturing nation, you have my permission to throw your shoe at the TV. <laughs> That's good. Yes, we have uh, heard many times that manufacturing is 12 or some odd percent of the economy and 88% is services. And so I'm glad you brought that up, Chris, because I was well, going to- Yeah, I mean, it's particularly because it, it often is definitional. I mean, one of the things that would seem pretty logical when you call something a service it's in service to what? It doesn't just exist in a vacuum. So a lot of the service economy services manufacturing, because not only do you have people that work in manufacturing who are not doing a technically manufacturing job, but for example, we have lots of clients who are accounting firms. Every accounting firm we work with has a manufacturing practice. Every one of those accountants is working for manufacturers. Without manufacturers, those accountants have no job. I just gave a talk to a banking organization yesterday in the Kansas City area, Missouri Bankers. And I asked for a show of hands. Lots of these are small town community bankers from all over the state. And I asked for a show of hands, how many of you have as your dominant business partners, your dominant clients, manufacturers, every hand went up. Every one of these small town bankers were like, yeah, our biggest client's a manufacturer. Yeah, so's mine, so's mine, so's mine, so's mine. 
these manufacturers are all out in many of the rural areas because manufacturing is a small business concern. 75% of manufacturers have 20 employees or less. And you go through any small town and you'll see these buildings out on the outskirts making stuff. And, and it drives those communities. Therefore, it drives those banks as well. Chris, I'm watching with interest uh, the war with Ukraine, promulgated uh, by Russia, and we'll talk about Russia in a minute. And we're funding some material to go over to Ukraine to help them out. Uh, what kind of a boost does that give manufacturers in the U.S., aside from you know, Lockheed and Raytheon and folks like that? There's got to be a lot of tier two and three guys who are real happy. Absolutely. I mean, the defense establishment has always been a big driver of manufacturing demand. I mean, it's it's yet another thing that people don't really understand about manufacturing. The big companies that you think of when you think of manufacturing, you know, Ford and Boeing, but Raytheon and Lockheed, they're not so much manufacturers as they are assemblers. They take the parts that are made from all over the country and then they put them together to make an airplane or a missile or a tank or whatever it is that's being produced. And that's where those tier two, three, four, five suppliers come in. You may have a company out in the middle of nowhere that makes a little fastener for something. I mean, a company we've worked with for years literally makes the housing that goes over a hydraulic system that the military uses in their Humvees. So they're a steel fabricating company and all they make is the little housing that goes over the hydraulic system. Well, it was a very complicated process because what they were trying to do was get this hydraulic system as small as it could possibly be. So they needed a cage that would allow it to not overheat. And so this company did all kinds of experimentation with lightweight materials, blah, blah, blah. But that's all they make but it's 30% of their business is supplying these Humvees with this little cage. And you look at every other part uh, in any of these pieces of equipment, it's coming from dozens of different sources. So the DOD has always been a, a big demand factor as far as manufacturing is concerned. And as a bonus, as most of these manufacturers have learned, just because you've sold that to the military doesn't mean you can't sell it somewhere else. And for example, this company that makes a little cage for the hydraulic, well, apparently that has a real uh, value in the agricultural sector too, because you've got farmers out there with their tractors and their combines. They don't want to have to come driving back into the barn to do whatever hydraulic work they need to do. So they've got that same hydraulic system on their tractor and they need that same cage. So as much as this company sells to the Department of Defense for Humvees, they also sell to Case and Deer and, and companies that are making ag equipment. So it ends up becoming kind of a bonus. You're not only selling for the defense purposes, but you've got all the other. It's kind of like, remember, you know, NASA used to talk about how important it was because if it wasn't for NASA, we wouldn't have Tang. So. Yeah, right. If anybody remembers what the yeah. is. 
<laughs> exactly. You know, every so often I date myself. You know, it's the fact that I was able to watch the Andy Griffith show in its original um, kind of tells people how old I am. So, <laughs> so Chris, the war in Ukraine did impact uh, our supply chain, or we thought for a bit. Uh, I don't know that I saw it on grocery store shelves as an impact. No, the, the impact from the supply chain perspective on our side was pretty minimal because we just don't do very much business, period, with Russia and Ukraine. We never have. And so the biggest supply chain inhibition was, of course, energy. And Russia was providing Europe with, depending on the country, as much as 60%, 50% of their gas and oil. We don't import from Russia. We never have. And that's so it was not a big deal from the perspective of losing access. We did have an impact because we have been trying to make up the difference for Europe. Europe got most of its diesel from Russia. And when that was cut off, they had to find diesel from somewhere else. That somewhere else has been us. So we have been shipping a lot of our diesel to Europe, which is why our diesel prices have been so high. The biggest supply chain interruption from the U.S. perspective was probably food. But again, that was indirect because Russia and Ukraine combined account for about 25% of the world's wheat, 15% of the world's corn. Obviously, we grow our own wheat and our own corn and our own soybeans and our own everything else. It's just that it affected global demand. And where we were seeing countries in Africa and the Middle East and South Asia getting most of their food from Russia, now they're having to buy more of it from us, from the Canadians, from the Brazilians, from the Australians, which has tended to drive the prices up. Kind of good news for the farmer because their harvest prices have been better, but they got hit on the other side because their input costs were also higher. Fuel, fertilizer, Russia was a big producer of fertilizer. So the impact of supply chain disruption directly was related to China. The indirect disruption is the Russia-Ukraine war. And just uh, so that our listeners who are hearing this uh, on a uh, device where they're not watching video or AM radio, where we are expanding into, uh, we appreciate talking with Chris about these things because he has a wealth of knowledge. And I always like to talk on the subject of Russia because Chris was studying to be a CIA spook. And he was going to infiltrate Russia and help us that's, out. That, that's right. I had visions of being, you know, James Bond at some point, or at least Q, um, one of the two. <laughs> so, yeah, my original intent back in the 80s and my misspent youth was to be a spook, work for the agency, got a degree in Soviet studies, learned Russian, spent time many years and during stages in, in Mother Russia, both before it became Russia, when it was still the Soviet Union and, and afterwards. And so, you know, beneath this placid exterior beats the heart of a cold warrior. Um, I, I still think that, you know, they're godless communists and can't be trusted. Uh, so, but it, it was kind of interesting as the year began, I was suddenly relevant again. You know, it's like, oh my God, my, my Soviet degree, it's, it's, not, it's not useless anymore. 
And here's your bonus, listeners, watchers. <clears throat> the very first phrase I learned in Russian is now appropriate for today. It is Slava Vogu Savodnia Pyatnitsa. Thank God it's Friday. <laughs> so you can you can you can now take that to the bank, a universal sentiment. Yeah, clearly. Uh, you know, I we all sat back for many, many decades thinking uh, Mother Russia was a major superpower. They had this massive army, they had this incredible air force, they could shake us in a heartbeat, and they're having trouble with Ukraine. What's yeah, the yeah. real deal? Yeah, the real deal is that the, the Russian army has been much, much weaker than it has been perceived to be. And frankly, the U.S. military has never really been fooled by this. I mean, we've been watching what goes on in, in that country for a long time. And it, it's not exactly a paper tiger, but it's close because first off, it's a conscript army for the most part. And we know from our own experience that conscripts are not necessarily the most in, how shall we say this, enthusiastic soldiers. You know, they just kind of want to get out of this thing alive and go home. There has always been real questions about the basics within the military. Does their supply chain hold up? Do they have the right intelligence, et cetera? And then at the end of the day, one of the things that has plagued Russia throughout this conflict is the same thing that plagues their economy, which is corruption. And one of the just anecdotal aspects in the beginning, we were noting that they couldn't get fuel to their tanks. And you're like, you know, you're the second largest oil producer in the world. How do you not have fuel for your tanks? And the issue was not that they didn't have it. And it wasn't even that they weren't transporting it. It was just that the guys transporting that fuel was selling it to the Ukrainians. And it's like, why are you selling your fuel to the Ukrainians? Well, the Ukrainians are paying in dollars and euros, not stinking rubles. Yeah, but they're going to use that fuel to kill your people. Those are not my people. Those are tank people up in their tanks. So important. We're truck people. They don't shoot us. They just want what we have to sell. We sell them fuel. We sell them food. We sell them ammunition. You are selling ammunition to the Ukrainians. Duh, they use same guns we do. You know, and it's like, okay, well, when you are presiding over a country that is just corrupt to the core, you have to anticipate that you're going to get that kind of bleeding at, at every level. I mean, I've dealt with people in Russia where they had a laminated bribery rate. So rather than just, you know, surreptitiously, you know, I'm going to be bribed. No, you, I am bribed. Here is rate. I have it printed out for you. Makes it easy. If you want it today, it's this much. If tomorrow, this much. Next day, this much. But, 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 duh, it's bribery, you know, but, you know, now we don't have to haggle. That's <laughs> <laughs> great. So, Chris, you know, some years ago, and I can't tell you the exact year, you could probably tell me the USSR, the precursor to Russia, went bankrupt. Right. Essentially trying to race with us with high tech. 
Right. How close are they to bankruptcy now with this war? Yeah, they're very close. And in a lot of respects, they've probably set their economy back a, a good 20, 25 years for three reasons. Number one has simply been the exodus of investment. Now, we haven't seen a lot of that because we never did invest much in Russia. There were a few companies that did, but not much. Most of the investment came from Europe and a lot of it came from Germany. The Germans have pulled out. I mean, some companies are still there, uh, but for the most part, the German investment has fled and unlikely to come back at anything close to what it used to be. The number two problem is that Russia has been more and more limited in terms of what it can export. Right now, it is entirely dependent on oil, gas, and food always has been dominant for Russian exports, but they also had legitimate concerns in terms of steel production and mineral production and some heavy machinery. And, you know, there were Russian products that were being sold around the world. Not much now, because not only have those production capabilities been compromised by the war itself, I mean, one thing that's just occurred within the last few months when Putin tried to suddenly draft some 300,000 men into the military, well, they fled. You know, in the first place, they weren't coming home because they didn't want to get caught by the, by the draft organizers. But then Russia started going to people's workforce, workplace, and seizing people at their workplace not even letting them tell their family what happened. So what 3 million Russian men said, I'm not even going to work anymore. I don't want to be drafted. So suddenly they have this massive labor shortage because nobody's showing up for work. And then the third thing that's really damaging the economy is that if they are continuing to sell oil and gas, which they are, they're selling it at a discount because the companies and countries that are buying it are basically saying, you're over a rock and a hard place. We'll buy your oil, but at the price we set. And if you don't like it, hey, sell it somewhere else. Oh, you can't. Precisely. That's what you're going to sell it to us for. Yes, I'm reading $60 a barrel, which is about their extraction cost. Oh, exactly. I mean, and that was earlier in the year when prices at the per barrel level nationally and internationally was 120 130 bucks well right now oil prices have come down quite a bit and but they're still in the 70s but russia is not getting 70 bucks a barrel for the majority of its oil they're still producing they're still selling they're even still selling to europe to a degree but they're not selling what they used to and the europeans are aggressively looking for alternatives they're going to be buying their oil from other countries. They're opening up relationships with countries they haven't dealt with for years. I mean, kind of like us, we're suddenly talking to the Venezuelans, kind of like, okay, we still hate you, but you've got oil. And that is interesting. And the Europeans are working with Libya. Well, kind of, you know, it's like there's really no government in Libya. So they're sort of going to the various warlords saying, do you have any control over oil? Sure. Can we buy some of that? Sure. Just think, if you sell us your oil, you can buy guns to shoot the other warlords. Um, and that has, has been enthusiastically embraced in Libya. They're even dealing with Algeria, which they haven't for years. 
Well, I, I know you've had some uh, insight into what's happening in the Middle East, and I know I'll mispronounce the name of the country, which is either Qatar or Qatar, but they're developing, is it oil or natural gas or both, in a very large fine? Very, very large fine. And Qatar is a one of the Gulf oil states, and it has undergone quite a bit of change in just the last few years. It has some new leadership, which is more pro-Western than those that have been in power before. For the last 10 years, they've been trying to develop this natural gas field, and they didn't get a whole lot of enthusiasm from the West because the Europeans, which was their natural market, didn't feel like they had to put money into this because they could always buy natural gas cheaply from Russia and Ukraine. Now that they don't have that security, they're looking for alternatives. And so suddenly this project that's been kind of languishing for 10 years is underway. It's a consortium of five oil companies, ExxonMobil, ConocoPhillips, Total out of France, ENI out of Italy, and Shell out of Britain. And when they come together, and they already have, to start developing this field, that field alone will replace the gas that's coming from Russia now. So it makes the natural gas output from gutter second only to the natural gas output from the United States. So it's a massive change. And if you look at all the other deals that are being made, there's just aggressive um, expansion into, into other alternatives, even parts that used to be part of the USSR. We kind of look at Russia as, as this oil producer, but it was the Soviet Union that was the big oil producer. Many of those countries, which used to be part of the USSR, are now independent. One of the big oil producers in the world is Kazakhstan. And the Kazakhs have really stepped up oil production because it's like, hey, we used to be Soviets, not now, we're independent. We're still a tyranny, but hey, we're not a Russian tyranny and, and you can buy oil from us. And so the Kazakhs are stepping up their production Weirdly enough, one of the inhibitions right now is the Turks have blocked a bunch of tankers that are supposed to be coming out of Kazakhstan into the oil market because of the European decision not to insure or not to allow insure of Russian oil. And everyone is blasting the Turks going, you jerks, this is not Russian oil, it's Kazakh oil. They're perfectly insured no problem at all. And the Turks are basically trying to curry favor or Erdogan, their prime minister with the Russians by blocking these tankers. And the Europeans are like, just apoplectic and rage right now. It's kind of like, yeah, we should have finished off the Ottoman Empire when we had a chance. Um, <laughs> so. So what's happening with China? We know that their GDP has softened considerably. They're still, I hear, it's experiencing an outbreak of COVID to the tune of 40,000 cases a day, which you don't hear on the mainstream media. Um, they're apparently really struggling. We thought they were going to be this superpower that challenged us. It seems like they, for the moment, have lost their tread on that track. 
Yeah, they're in a rock and a hard place situation, particularly because of COVID. So for the last several weeks, months, there have been mounting demonstrations, people frustrated with the zero tolerance policy and the lockdowns and the shutdowns. These have been exploding all over the country and people have just had it. You know, they're tired of being essentially under house arrest. They can't go to work. They can't go shopping they can't travel and understand that we're coming up on the part of the year where travel is pivotal in China. It's the Lunar New Year. It starts shortly into 2023. It's required that you go back to your ancestral home and visit those villages right now under a zero tolerance policy that wouldn't be permitted. So the announcement was made that they were going to loosen the restrictions and and start allowing people to resume normal patterns. The challenge, though, is that China, because it's been locked down for the last couple of years, has not had the kind of of automatic benefit that the US and Europe has had. Most of us have had some version of COVID. And fortunately for the majority of us, it's been mild and we haven't had the mass hospitalizations that we had in the beginning. But the benefit from that is that people who have had COVID now have a little bit of natural immunity. It's that herd immunity conversation we had two years ago. China's got none of that. So as soon as they lower the restrictions, they had exposed a population that has not been exposed for two years, and they're already being overwhelmed. They've run out of of fever medicine. You know, it's not, you know, not only is it just running out of COVID medicine, they don't even have medicine to affect people's symptoms. And so the pressure is going to be immense to go back into a lockdown, which would be the worst of both worlds that you would still lock down your economy, but your population's already been affected and and is sick. So China is paying the price, again, for corruption. You know, their version of the vaccine is not very effective. And even though it isn't effective, they continue to use it because the guy that's in charge of their COVID policy has financial interests in the company that produces that vaccine. And so, gee, I wonder why they're still using it. And so it puts them at a, at a severe disadvantage. Not only have they not been able to see people go back to work, well, it's cut into their production. And as they become more and more overtly hostile to the U.S., the new watchword in the U.S. is friend shoring. If you're going to do business overseas, do business in a country that doesn't hate you. Um, so it's like, (laughs) so companies are looking at Vietnam or Taiwan or Malaysia or, you know, some other country, Thailand, that is more friendly to the U.S. It is kind of ironic that the only countries that really like us are the ones we've had wars with. Um, so, you know, Japan likes us, Germany likes us, Vietnam likes us. The French have never liked us. You know, I mean, how many times we've been on their side and they still don't like us. Um, so, yeah, a constant struggle. And it's interesting that you mentioned uh, Southeast Asia. And I'm also wondering about India. We don't hear much about that in the mainstream news. I know that when the supply chain crisis hit and China was not the reliable source we thought they would be, that manufacturers in the US either brought back their demand to the U.S. or 
scattered it across the uh, Southeast Asia and India. How yeah, are you, those areas of the world doing? Yeah, that's still it's still a growth area. Most of the manufacturing that has shifted in Asia has gone to places like Vietnam and Thailand and the like. The advantage that China had beyond all of the low-cost production was they had the infrastructure to support that kind of manufacturing. And many of the countries in Southeast Asia don't have that infrastructure. So it has been difficult for them to kind of pick up where China left off. That's always been India's challenge, that transportation within India is is very iffy. And so manufacturers are able to find the low production costs, but getting the product out of the country is a challenge, both because of the, the structural difficulties and just the bureaucracy of India. Narendra Modi is a nationalist in, in India and has been sort of balancing this Hindu-Muslim split that exists in India. They have been fairly preoccupied with their relationships with Pakistan, and they continue to get more tense by by the day. But India has done a very good job of participating in kind of the service part of, of exports. I mean, we know that call centers and support centers and IT centers, many of those have set up in India because they've got an educated population and that doesn't require shipping product across the country. You're just setting up operations and cities like Chennai and Bangalore and Hyderabad and, and taking advantage of that. So India is certainly benefiting from some of the exodus out of China. They stand to do more if they can kind of get out of their own way. They will be the most populous country in the world within the next five or six years. They will overtake China in terms of being the most populous country. China's population growth is slowing um, and India's is speeding up. <clears throat> the other area that's picking up a lot of, of international interest, again, limited by infrastructure, is Africa. Um, there's several countries in Africa, well-educated, young population, willing to be involved in global manufacturing if you can get past the transportation challenges. Well, as we wrap this up, I just want to touch on that population issue as it relates to the United States. Uh, we seem to be approaching zero population growth, something we haven't experienced in, I don't know how many decades. Uh, not good for anything, manufacturing, services, uh, employment. It, it, is there going to be a turn in that, Chris, or is it, are we just going to slide for a while? We're, we're kind of up against a real barrier here because by 2030, all of the baby boomers will have reached retirement age. That's 73 million people. We have a population of 330 million. So do the math. That's nearly a quarter of the U.S. population is going to be at retirement age. Doesn't mean that all the boomers are going to quit all at once, but you're seeing a much faster rate of actual retirement. Those people who are at the beginning of the boomer generation, they're in their 80s now, and they're actually stepping down. So we have that to contend with. We don't have the immigration that we used to. And immigration plays a different role than it once did. Once upon a time, we had lots of jobs for people who had limited skills, 
language barriers, all the rest of that stuff. They could go to work in some sectors of the economy. And frankly, we counted on their children more than we counted on them, that the second generation would be filling those posts. Well, we don't have jobs for that immigrant now. We're now competing for the same kind of immigrant that the Europeans are looking at and the Asians. We want skill, we want education. The challenge for us and for Europe when it comes to growing population is that having children is expensive. One of the things that has affected the job market is that you're seeing a lot of families do the math and they're looking at the two spouses, assuming you've got a two spouse household. And it's like, okay, if I take a job and I'm paid this much money and you also have a job, that means somebody is going to have to be paid to take care of our kids. We're going to have to pay childcare costs. If the childcare costs are more than I'm being paid for this job, why am I working? I should stay home, take care of my own children, and we'll be a single wage earner family rather than dual wage earner. And right now, I mean, there are literally millions of families who are saying it does not make sense for us both to be in the workforce. One of us needs to stay home. And so we sit there and wonder what happened to the workers and the workers are taking care of their kids. They're taking care of their elders. That's become a big problem too. Boomers are getting their revenge. You know, it's like, Hey, when we were young and you were killed children, we had to change your diapers. Now you get to change ours. So the sons and the grandsons and the granddaughters, and the, it's like, well, They've got to take care of their elderly parents. Look at the rail strike. The rail strike that was averted at the last minute was not about money, wasn't about pensions, wasn't about working conditions. It was about time off. It was sick leave. It was reliable schedules. People in the business saying, look, I have to have a reliable, flexible schedule. Dad has dementia. Mom has to go to the hospital twice a week. I have to be where I can arrange this. And in the rail sector, that was hard to do. Yeah, no doubt. Well, Chris, thanks for joining us. We always appreciate you being on with us. And we want to remind our listeners, it's armada-intel.com. Uh, uh, the flagship report is an interesting document. It comes out three times a week. It's a whopping $7 a month. A lot of insight for a caramel macchiato from Starbucks once a month. So uh, Chris, touch on that a little bit as we wrap up and thanks for being with us. Yeah, just kind of to reiterate how we started this, it is you know seven or eight pages worth of global, international, domestic. We're kind of all over the place looking at what affects business. Uh, a lot of it oriented towards manufacturing, but other sectors as well. And it's designed to be a quick read. I mean, we, we publish it three times a week so that you're guiltless if you miss an issue or two. You know, it's not like you have to save it all up. It's like, ah, oh, shoot, I got busy on Monday. It's back on Wednesday. I'll catch up. So I encourage people to give it a shot. And uh, if they like it, they can, they can keep getting it and give up that one caramel macchiato a month and you'll be in good shape. Chris, I'm sorry, I have to drag you into one more topic, education in the United States. Um, you know, the government school system, which we call public schools, it's really government funded and it's going all over the place with CRT and 
all the other stuff that they're teaching. They've forgotten about reading, writing, math, arithmetic, that, that kind of stuff. Exactly. Uh, with workers staying home, at least a parent staying home, is homeschooling and private schooling likely to take off? Probably not, because the the data that's beginning to come out now is very depressing. It basically is asserting that students have lost a year of education, and it has been a very poor substitute to being in the classroom. Not only has it been poor from an educational accumulation of knowledge perspective, but when you talk to teachers, they're like, we lost a year of socialization. Kids don't know how to interact with each other. They're rude. Their attention span is short. We've seen this kind of in the Zoom environment period because people have become so isolated when all they communicate is through Zoom. They're forgetting how to interact with human beings. And so I think this mad rush to doing everything remotely has probably played itself out and education is right up there where it's, we need to be back in the classroom. But the other thing we need to think about from an educational perspective is what we're teaching kids about their future. We don't do much with the kinetic learner and 25% of the population learns with their hands. These are the manufacturing employees. These are the construction employees. These are the transportation employees. We don't train for that. And so we have this massive job shortage where theoretically there are 6 million people out there looking for work, but none of them have the skills to go to work for manufacturing, construction, transportation, because we don't train for it. And only 5% of schools now still have any sort of industrial arts. Um, so you're, you've gone full tilt away from I me. Mean, I went to high school, Vogue Tech was, you know, every afternoon, half the population of the school disappeared to go work. And, right. and you know, that was the Vogue Tech thing. Everybody took shop. You all had teachers with fingers like this. Um, and, you know, it's, it's like today, it's rare. And you kids don't have exposure to it. They don't even know what manufacturers do which is a tragedy and their teachers don't know and their advisors don't know parents don't know so it's up to you and me to just go around to all these kids going straighten up young man um you know you need to be a welder that's right chris again i know you're a busy guy you've got lots to do thanks for the extended time today a lot of important topics thanks for being with us you're welcome thank you talk to you next time all right. And for all of you who are listening, you can find us at jacketmediaco.com or you can check us out on AM radio, which we're expanding into. Thanks for being with us on this episode of Manufacturing Talk Radio. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.